Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. We shouldn't be under any illusion that there are some very different visions of how these new critical technologies um, should be applied and can be applied. There's a very different value set um, and vision of what they can achieve in comparison to what we would like these technologies to do for our societies. G'day. Welcome to the National Security Podcast, brought to you by the ANU National Security College, with support from policyforum.net. In this program, Tobias Feakin, Australia's Ambassador for Cyber Affairs and Critical Technology, joins Professor Rory Metcalf to unpack the government's recently launched international cyber and critical tech engagement strategy. Prior to his ambassadorial appointment, Dr Feakin was the Director of National Security Programs at the Australian Strategic Policy Institute from 2012 to 2016, where he established the Institute's International Cyber Policy Centre. Before we get into it, we'd like to acknowledge the Ngunnawal people, traditional owners of the land from which we broadcast. We pay our respects to their elders past, present and emerging. Now, let's get into it. Welcome to the podcast, uh, Ambassador, Ambassador Tobias Feakin, who's Australia's Ambassador for Cyber Affairs and Critical Technology. It's a great pleasure to welcome you on this uh, on this program, our, our Security Summit series, where we talk to leaders, thought leaders and policy leaders in this in this space. Now, you've, uh, you've got a job that involves many, many objectives. You wear multiple hats, I guess, in a way. You have to deal with so many stakeholders to prosecute Australia's national interest. But I know that uh, foremost in your mission at the moment is uh, advocating this, uh, th- this new strategy, Australia's International Cyber and Critical Technology Engagement Strategy. So I thought, let's hear a little from you to begin with upfront about that strategy, but then I'd like to wind back a little bit and find out a bit more about you know, the context of making policy in this space. Yeah, absolutely. Look, Rory, thanks so much for having me here. It's a real pleasure um, to be at the NSC and, and to talk to you about, um, well, obviously what I believe are some of the most important issues going on in, in, in the world today. Um, but it's um, we do, you're right, uh, in saying the foreign minister just two weeks ago now launched our uh, international cyber and critical technology engagement strategy. Um, and I think it's good to say, well, why do you need something like that? What's the point in having an international outlook on these issues? Um, put quite simply, it's it's a reflection of the fact that cyber and, and critical technology, and what do we mean by critical technology? It's those technologies that have a direct impact on our national interest, whether it be economic security or our social cohesion. Um, you know, there's a whole load of other terms banded around like emerging tech, but, you know, not all emerging techs are going to be critical to our national interest. And that's where the definition yep. um, lies. Um, well, these these issues now in 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 the global context are becoming ever more central to 
geopolitical power shifts um, and the the contestability of the international environment writ large. So um, really it's a statement of well, what is it Australia wants in that international environment? What is it that it wants to shape and how is it going to go about that? Um, and you know, genuinely, it's needed now more than ever. And you're seeing increasingly that other countries, whether it be UK through their integrated review, um, whether it be through um, various other uh, mechanisms from other like-minded partners, they're all thinking about these issues and beginning to strategize around it. But we really are genuinely into the period now, I think, of grand strategy on cyber and tech issues in a way that we've not really seen um, in, in recent history. That's a, that's a pretty big definition for uh, for a country like Australia, which I guess has sometimes been a bit cautious about the idea of grand strategy, uh, you know, a middle power or a middle player or top 20 countries were sometimes called. Australia has played and is playing, I would argue, uh, quite a lead role on these issues internationally. So I guess two follow-up questions to that. One is, what firstly, how has this strategy advanced beyond you know what I know was a uh, a previous international cyber strategy uh, that, that that Australia put forward in uh, twenty seventeen I think and that that you played a major role in but also um, what does leadership look like in this space for a country like Australia? Yeah, really good question. I mean, look, I think Australia plays a, a has played a strong role in the international environment for quite some time. Um, you could look back to the 2016 cybersecurity strategy as really setting up the basis for this position um, and the government at the time really you know, shooting the priority up through the stars um, in terms of um, how government was thinking about cybersecurity um, and about beginnings of the broader tech environment. Um, and then it was also through a whole range of decisions, you know, the, the 5G decision here, um, some of the really um, excellent policy that was made through Home Affairs and, and the Australian Signals Directorate on that front um, has really set a benchmark, which, are, you know, internationally countries are intrigued by and want to learn from us and understand, well, what is it that's special in Australia? Why, why are we, you know, feel like reaching for the stars in this area? Because there, there is genuine, you can feel that where in this job, it's been a real privilege to see that on the road. Um, how other countries do look now to Australia to set, set a marker out there on, on various issues. Um, so in, in terms of um, this strategy, where does it differentiate? So in, in 2017, uh, when I first came into this position, one of the requirements of the job was to create a strategy around what it was we wanted in in cyberspace. Um, what, what were the key things we wanted to achieve there? I won't go through all the details of that, but it's all the things, again, that you'd expect. You know, how do we make the most of the digital economy? How do we ensure good cybersecurity with our partners around the region? How do we deal with the international security environment? How do we combat cybercrime? How do we ensure that human rights are upheld online? It was a very wide-reaching piece of work and, and important at the time. But what we've seen in the interim period is that the you couldn't escape a conversation around cyber affairs, cyber issues writ large without suddenly these terms of you know, artificial intelligence, quantum computing blockchain, whatever it might be, you know, pick your term. It kept on coming up in the conversation. You couldn't escape it. Um, and then telecommunications, future te telecommunications, 5G issues um, becoming front and center. Um, and it, it was just, you couldn't avoid the fact that we needed to understand, well, what does this look like in its broadest sense? And what is it that we as Australia want 
to do in the international environment? What do we need to shape? Um, so, you know, what is it that we can do as Australia? What is the role that we can play? Well, you know, we, we are very good in certain key technology areas. We have some amazing capability, but we, we aren't a key startup hub. We aren't a Silicon Valley. We aren't a Beijing. We aren't, um, you know, some of those other big hubs like Tel Aviv, uh, for example. But we do have a voice in shaping what technology looks like once it's absorbed into societies. And I think that's where our value add really comes. Um, we can help shape that environment. Um, certainly we do distinctly at a domestic level. Well, how can we take that out into the international environment and ensure that many of these technologies that are being developed at an incredibly rapid rate of knots, how do we ensure that when they're absorbed into the global system, that they're absorbed into that system in a way which doesn't negatively affect our societies? Because... You know, we shouldn't be under any illusion that there are some very different visions of how these new critical technologies um, should be applied and can be applied. There's a very different value set um, and vision of what they can achieve in comparison to what we would like these technologies to do for our societies. And if you like, maintain some of the values that we hold dear, um, that's not a vision that's shared. And I mean, we can definitely dig into that a bit more, if you like, in the conversation. But, you know, that's at the heart of this strategy. And it's an important expression of our policy and our thinking in this area so that we can share that with other countries and, and try and be as forward leaning as possible. Um, because, you know, this is a requirement of modern government. Uh, and certainly if governments don't have strategies like this now, they're in the process of developing them. So let's uh, open up a bit of that further. I think the you know you talk about the world that Australia wants to see. You talk about the role of diplomacy, and maybe we can go a little bit to the mechanics of how that works, because uh, you know these are mysteries to a lot of people. Um, and the the world that Australia wants to see, uh, as opposed to perhaps the the vision that, that that we may be up against, including from authoritarian countries. But first, I want to go back to a point you made about um, Australian leadership in this space is partly simply about using and sharing the example of what we've done domestically in the international space. Uh, it'd be good to have a few practical examples, if you like, of you know what are some of the Australian um, policy initiatives or achievements in this space that you uh, particularly uh, you know lot, lot like to promote in the international context. Look, yeah, there's, there's a whole range, but I think I will take the obvious example that I'd already flagged, which is around our, our 5G decision-making process. Um, you know, for in Australia, that feels like um, a, a considerable, considerably long time ago that that decision was made. But there's still so many countries who are still in the process of working out what their future telecommunications architecture looks like, um, and and so it's still very relevant and. Um, talking through why did we make that decision? Why did we make it when we did? And what were the basic? What was the basis of that decision? Um, has been incredibly helpful in explaining to other countries who are, to be frank, you know, caught in a quandary of what they should do. Um, and, and I think you know that's one of the, you know, the the biggest areas of policy that we've shared. Um, I mean, an another way in which we've um, push the envelope is not just through taking domestic policy and, and sharing that with others, but also looking at the international environment and trying to be forward leaning in what we then say 
um, in, in a policy context. And one way in which we've done that is through the discussion on international law and norms, um, through the UN processes where, um, you know, credit to my colleagues across government in the way that they've come to the party and really tried to progress what's being said by government, by our government, in, in order that it, it, it creates more transparency with other countries in the international environment, whether it be um, about our offensive cyber capability, whether it be about the application of international law to cyberspace, whether it be about how we implement 11 norms of behavior that were agreed at the UN in 2015. We've tried to make that as practical and clear and as accessible to as wide an audience as possible in the hope that others start, as I say, coming to the party and doing the same. So just for clarity for uh, listeners to the podcast, because of course, a lot of our listeners are Australian, um, some of our listeners are not Australian, and it's, it's great to know that we're, we're projecting some uh, analysis and insight internationally. And the 5G decision was several years ago, I think it was uh, August 2018, if I remember rightly. Um, what was the uh, what, what, what were the contours of that decision exactly? Yeah, absolutely. Look, well, I mean, it starts from the premise that, um, you know, Providing 5G infrastructure, telecommunications infrastructure, is one of the most significant infrastructure builds that any country is going to make because um, 5G architecture will be the underpinning of most digital um, uh, tools that we will use in, in the immediate and near future. Um, whether it be Internet of Things devices, uh, driverless cars, and, and you know all, all of these things that we know are in you know high end development and will soon be with us, five G will enable those because it will en enable a much faster moving connected environment than we currently have. Um, and in terms of the decision that Australia made, uh, it was on the basis of well, what does that five G architecture look like once it's fully matured? once it's fully operational and having to enable, for example, driverless cars. Um, and the decision that was made was that, well, you, you couldn't allow high-risk vendors into the core of that network and hope that you could, if you like, buffer it from the less important parts of the network because the whole network becomes vital. Be you know, For example, you wouldn't want a driverless car suddenly dropping out of signal um, and, and then becoming a liability uh, wherever it's driving. So um, essentially, you couldn't allow high-risk vendors into the network. Um, and also, uh, there was a, uh, perhaps a term, you, you know, you couldn't, you, you couldn't allow a fox into the hen house. So um, if you can make those kind of risk mitigation decisions in advance, well, why wouldn't you make those? It's not a traditional cybersecurity issue either. So you know, there's a lot of cybersecurity risk mitigation measures which were looked at and examined, but... Um, were pushed to one side. They just it was realised that they weren't applicable. So in the end, you also need to look at the decision in terms of well, you know, what about your economic security? If this architecture is going to underpin your economic future as well, which it will, um, again, can you accept a certain degree of risk with a high risk vendor inside that network? And the decision came back to no in the end. And, and if you like, that's at a very top level and, and it's not the entirety of the basis of the decision, but it begins to give you the understanding of, of why those decisions were made. Now, uh, being a first mover in, in terms of making those decisions has allowed, um, in my view, the telecommunications sector here to take advantage of that, mature their 5G networks and put us in a great place as a nation to innovate around that and then share that innovation 
globally. So if you like, take us that one step beyond the decision and more into, well, what is it that 5G can offer us? And I think that's, that's optimistically where we're, we're heading now. And that's also, apart from anything else, a fantastic case study into the way in which economics and security are so intertwined now, you know, that essentially economic policy is security policy and vice versa, which Absolutely. are useful aside for uh, students at the National Security College who are trying to work through, the, through these things. Um, I want to go back to values, if, you, yeah. if we may, because you've, or values and vision, if you like, because you've talked a little bit about the, you know, the vision for uh, the way in which uh, cyber and critical technologies are developed in the world and uh, really put to the service of societies and businesses and states. And there is an Australian vision, which is not exclusively Australian, there are other countries that I'm sure are like-minded with us, at least on some of these issues, uh, that is uh, grounded in in values. There's a lot about values and I would what I would see as liberal, liberal democratic principles in the strategy that, uh, that you've developed and that you're advocating. Can you talk a bit more about that connection between values and the vision that Australia sees for technology in the world. Absolutely and I think it goes to um, our discussion around you know the geopolitical contestability of technology and the fact that there are some very different visions of what critical technologies will do for us and uh, um, both uh, for for various nations and uh, more broadly as a a global society And, and some of those visions don't fit with the values that we hold dear. And part of this is equipping anyone who picks up this strategy and giving them the ability to engage in a technology discussion. You you don't need to be a deep subject matter expert in AI, for example, to be able to discuss some of the ethical principles that should be thought about when you're developing AI algorithms, for example. Um, And so this strategy lays out what some of our core values are as Australia, whether that be, you know, upholding human rights principles about ethical design of technologies about gender and diversity issues being built into tech um, upholding international law and norms in in technologies you know those kinds of principles along with liberal democratic values more broadly um, we think are incredibly important um, in terms of baking them into technology design but also baking them into the way in which technologies are absorbed into the international context Um, and so that's why we, we place them um, at, at the outset. And, and you know, it's um, no, no secret. You look at the way um, some other countries with a more authoritarian vision of, of how technologies can be used, they, they certainly aren't being applied with the same values that we would here. And then when you take that out into the global context, that's why we have such a focus on issues like standard setting in technology, which is um, very much more a focus of government again now. Because... You know, if you look at standard setting bodies, those values are being intertwined in some of the technology standards that are being discussed and and looked at being implemented in the global setting. So we need to be thinking as a first principle, what are the values that we want to embody and what that we want technology um, to deliver for us? And, and interestingly, in the, in the process of developing this strategy and talking to a huge number of um, private sector entities, both here and, and internationally, um, there, there was quite clear feedback from certain companies, which was actually, you know, f- for Australia as a, as a nation, if 
um, if, if for us, what we want to just understand very clearly are what are the value sets that you stand for, because we'll innovate around those value sets and, you know, obviously the legislation too that you have in, in play. Um, but just understanding what you stand for as a nation makes it much easier for us to innovate around. So, you know, hopefully it can prompt that kind of innovation cycle too. And often the example was used with a couple of companies that I spoke to when I was in Europe. Um, they were operating in Germany and they said, look, it's really easy innovating here. Germany has very strict principles around privacy, around encryption and a number of other things. And that's all we need to know. And, and on that basis, we, we are doing very well um, in terms of coming out with some really interesting products that, that then get absorbed into that society. Um, and so it's an attempt to express that. And, and so, you know, anyone engaging with us has a clear understanding of those values. And incidentally, this, this discussion seems to, I guess, balance the assumption that some make that, uh, if you like, uh, there is commercial advantage in having a very uh, loose uh, adherence to to liberal democratic values or even uh, really innovating uh, against those values. It, it sounds as if that uh, values and commercial advantage can go hand in hand in some circumstances. Yeah, absolutely. And, and also you, you raised the issue already around, um, you know, uh, industry's role. Um, and, and we've been talking about, you know, industry innovating around values. But, you know, let's be under no illusions as well. Some of the big multinational tech firms, um, at, at times it's hard to put a finger on exactly what those values and principles are because they, they often do seem to shift depending on the market environment that they're looking to operate in or build a business in. Um, so I, I see no issue with the fact that we as a government state, these are values that we, you know, we, we expect you to be upholding if you're going to be dealing in our environment. And you know that's a big part of this job as well is – getting out and talking to some of the big multinational tech firms and, and trying to um, just get to a better sweet spot in terms of, you know, where they're heading with their technology cycles, um, some of the policy decisions that we're making, explaining that to them. And, and an initiative that we kicked off with the Danish tech ambassador, they have an ambassador which is posted in Silicon Valley. Um, we kicked off this piece of work in 2019 um, is a cyber and tech retreat where we take 25 of these kinds of positions from around the world. We place them in the backyard of Silicon Valley. We call it the Golden Gate Group um, and engage one-on-one -on -one with some of the most senior tech characters that you would know and love from your TV screens and, and have a pretty pointy conversation with them around um, particular tech policy related issues, trying to create that environment where you can have a hard, tough decision um, or, uh, you know, conversation um, whilst whilst feeling relatively, if you like, a safe space to do so, and and it's I know a lot of our um, my my colleagues around the world get incredible value out of it, and increasingly you're seeing the tech industry understand the importance of a conduit like that for those conversations. You'll see now, like the tech industry has comprehensively shifted. They, whilst you know they're still playing a bit of catch up, I think in a policy from a policy point of view, that they're, they're growing their policy teams at a huge rate of knots. And that's actually a really important observation that the industry's shifted and we may, we'll see if we can come back to that if there's, if there's time. And I just note, even looking at the strategy document, that uh, the way it looks at values, it categorises or it classes them in, in, in categories of democratic principles, of human rights, of the ethics of critical technology, of diversity and gender equality. I wonder if you could just maybe elaborate on a few of those, uh, in, including, for example, in relation to privacy uh, and, and, and human rights. You know, what, what, what's special about the Australian approach? 
Yeah, look, I, I mean, I, what's special about the Australian approach is, I mean, firstly, I think that we're willing to put these things down on paper and, and stand for them. Um, I would say that, um, you know, a lot of these values are common values that we share, not all of them, um, but we share with a whole range of our like-minded partners. Um, and, and I think, again, the, the, the idea here is to not overcomplicate them with, with a value like you know, human rights. It should be a simple equation. Human rights apply online equally as they do offline. And I think if you take that very simple explanation of each of the values that's exactly how, how we should be explaining them so that they're simple constructs. And, you know, it's, it's just saying, you know, this is, this is common sense um, and this is what Australia feels should, should exist in the international environment. Now, does it, does it exist everywhere? No, and that's why we feel that it's important to champion those. And I think at this stage, it's trying to equip as many people as possible within the Australian government and amongst a kind of broader stakeholder environment that, that we work with to, to now take these words on board and then utilise them in their engagements internationally. We'll be back after this short break. Cool fact, a crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Also, you can get health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Around the world, democracies are in crisis. Leaders have become followers. Populists offer glib solutions to complex problems, and people search for answers. Block out the noise. Each week on Democracy Sausage, we go deeper to bring you insights from leading scholars, journalists and commentators to help you make sense of the world. I'm Mark Kenny from the Australian National University. Join me at the Democracy Sausage Hot Plate every Monday and Thursday. I want to come back to the industry thing again in a moment and the, and the stakeholders and the, the extraordinary amount of engagement and consultation that you have to do, not just you personally, but you and your team and, and colleagues who work as diplomats and policymakers in this space. But I want to first go to diplomacy because it's great to have a strategy. It's great for Australia to be out there advancing its position, building coalitions, uh, trying to get outcomes. But multilateral diplomacy, as we all know, can be pretty agonising work. Um, I have had a little bit, little bit of experience in the past of multilateral diplomacy in the in the arms control space. You know, I guess more in the uh, you know the WMD uh, world, where uh, there is a theory, there is a view that as soon as countries begin to negotiate away advantage in a particular class of weapons, it's because really they don't see advantage of that anymore. They're not actually giving anything up. Um, in cyber and critical tech, of course, the um, this is a universe that is rapidly evolving and expanding and it's now deeply intertwined with state power and with the geopolitical quest for advantage. So how do you get outcomes in multilateralism on these issues when there are some countries that are presumably very determined to achieve different outcomes when there needs to be uh, an enormous amount of energy and attention to detail and where I guess in many cases your outcomes are going to be quite provisional you know is there a um to use a term that's been used a lot in diplomacy lately is there a secret source to how we do multilateral diplomacy on on cyber apart from um, endless reserves of um, of energy (laughs) (laughs) what's the secret source in, in in this area now look in the context that you describe you know un discussions around international law and norms 
I, I would say it's the same recipe. It's hard yards. It's slow. It's um, looking very carefully at commas and, and words that are used and trying to understand the meaning that someone's using behind a particular phrase and why, why they want that inserted into a particular document or into a particular paragraph. That doesn't go away. That's still there. But you're right in pointing out there's the, the, the danger in all of that because there's some countries that use that to their advantage and they want this discussion to go on as long as humanly possible because what that does in a fast technology shifting environment, what that does is allow them huge flexibility in their operating environment, um, which means that they can um, conduct all sorts of malicious activity whilst we're stuck at the table negotiating X, Y, or Z. Now, if we take the cyber domain as an example, um, interestingly, actually, it was the Russians who really kind of created the whole cyber diplomacy area back in 1998. Um, my, my Russian counterpart, who's still around now, he, he went to the UN and introduced the idea that we should be talking about information security and how it could cause an international catastrophe. And I think those are pretty much his actual words he used at the time. So since 1998, we've been discussing these issues at the UN. Um, and in 2013, chaired by Australia, there was a UN group of government experts that agreed international law applied in its entirety, including, sorry, the entirety of the UN Charter. Um, and then in 2015, 11 norms of behavior were agreed, um, which we've always published and, and adhered to ourselves. And those, uh, we feel that that's, that's pretty much all that we need, you know, a, a bit more granularity in terms of how international law applies is, is incredibly helpful and useful, but the basis is there. What you see though is, is that, um, you know, that protracted discussion is being drawn out in the hope that we can they, a particular set of countries would like to draw us into a very protracted treaty-based discussion, which then is dragged out over the course of 10 years. And in the meantime, you know, you'll get to the end of that, and the end result will be a set of words which don't apply to the technology that's been then developed within 10 years, i.e. it creates more opportunity for grey zone <laughs> and, and, you know, uh, questionable activities in cyberspace and beyond. So, you know, this, this is almost the dichotomy that we're in. Your technology shifts so, so quickly, um, but the international debate at times just doesn't quite keep up with that. Um, that's not to say, I mean, somewhere like the UN now is in entirely um, on board with the whole concept of digital and cyber, but, and, and, and you can see a proliferation of discussions that are going on. The UN Secretary General is very much taken with this discussion and, and on board. Um, we do a huge amount of work through ASEAN regional forums on, on these issues as well, and there's been a, a great deal of progress there. So, so we are making progress. Is it quick enough? No. Um, it always seems, again, especially in cyberspace, that, that, that the advantage is with, um, if you like, those who are willing to conduct offensive operations um, uh, and, and not you know, put that on the table in a transparent way. Uh, with, with uh, you know, I don't mean all of their operations, but, you know, um, being willing to say that they own offensive capability and those are the parameters under which uh, they will use them. So, I mean, as policymakers, you know, I'm, I'm a big believer that we need to create policy frameworks that provide us with flexibility, flexibility to be able to absorb new technologies, new critical technologies when they come up. And so, you know, whilst it's a fairly lengthy document, you, you'll see that it's not incredibly prescriptive in masses of detail about every individual technology. It's about having broad principles which could apply and be flexibly applied to new critical technologies as they come, you know, online and, and stream. And that's, you know, this is not, not easy territory for governments. 
um, you know, we, we like to do things methodically. Uh, we do move very quickly at times, but, um, you know, tech, and, I, and this is drawing on a background I've had on tech policy for you know, 25 years now. It's scary to say that to you, to be honest, Rory. Um, governments at times find it hard to have that flexibility with these uh, kinds of technologies and, and using them themselves and creating effective policy around them. But I think we're getting there. And, you know, here in Australia, I think we're doing a really good job. So, so what are some of the mechanics of that diplomacy at a day-to-day level? Yeah. So, look, I, I, I mean, this is one of the demystification um, exercises that I'm trying to go through in, in my very fortunate time in this position. I, I don't think the art of diplomacy is going to look entirely different. It just requires that we move much quicker and that non-traditional means of diplomacy are and can be equally and sometimes more effective than the very traditional forms of diplomacy. And it's just accepting that that degree of flexibility of policymaking needs to be brought into your diplomacy as well. And fast-moving connections um, and the ability to shift uh, you know, th- those connections very, very rapidly is, is incredibly important. Now, you know, I would say that's modern diplomacy, and especially in the current context of, of contested environment. It's you know, having a clear mind um, and, and a very clear voice. Um, you know, and applying your very clear principles in in those conversations that you have um, is is vital. So I, I, you know, and this is something that I think is really important that, you know, when we teach grads, for example, about what does cyber diplomacy look like, it's it's saying to everyone, you're all cyber diplomats, you know, you will understand the digital environment more than most. Um, So go and use that interest and go and apply it in everything that you do in your jobs. And I guess that has implications for the, the structure and culture of, of, of organisations that do diplomacy as well. Yeah, no, undoubtedly, undoubtedly. So to go back to our, um, our, our other point then, um, yeah, so, so how do you build that united national approach in a liberal democracy where, where, where the whole is at least as great as some of its parts? Yeah. So, I mean, there will always necessarily be government, direct government interest where that, that has to be upheld and, um, you know, and necessarily so, rightfully so. Um, but, but in this area, you know, especially when we're looking at cyberspace or any of the critical technologies that we're dealing with, um, there's got to be an acknowledgement that a huge amount of the capability and the technology exists beyond our reach. It's, it's in the private sector. It's with the tech industry. Um, infrastructure developers and the like. Um, therefore, they've, they've necessarily got a loud voice in how this kind of position, my position, is is put together and what those interests might be. Um, but also with something like the internet, well, you know, everyone's got an interest in that, haven't they? I bet any listener, well, don't bet, I know that every listener to this podcast will be engaging with the internet probably whilst they're well, listening to this podcast itself, right? Um, therefore, it means that you need to be willing to reach out and listen to those voices. And I know certainly when I started this job, um, there were a few colleagues who were scratching their heads at who some of the visitors were consecutively coming to my office um, in the first months of this position. And it was genuinely tech leaders um, and industry figures and NGOs, academics, to try and get a perspective on, well, what what do you think a job like this should look for? How do I take that term multi-stakeholder and try and embody it? and deliver that in the international environment because that's to our advantage because if I can stand up in front of you know an authoritarian uh, regime that has a very distinct view that the state should run everything in in cyber and tech issues and say well you know we have a multi-stakeholder approach and uh, I can tell you that you know 
our position as informed by industry as much as government is this. If you can stand up and embody that, then that's, that's pretty powerful rather than saying the term um, as just an empty uh, phrase. So I think it's constant engagement. It's listening. It's being willing at times to take words or phrases from industry, pop them into some of your strategy documents so they can see that, you know, their ideas are in there. It's not that you're just listening for the sake of it, for going through a process. It's genuine consultation and engagement with with industry and multi-stakeholder in fact in fact is one of those very uh loaded and if you like um contested terms right it, it means something in international diplomacy you should maybe explain specifically what, uh, what what it means and why some countries are uncomfortable with it yeah sure i mean look multi-stakeholder is a term often it's kind of one of those terminology bingo games that that's played in in the cyber discussion because you hear it so much and everyone sighs and oh goodness yeah multi-stakeholder well what it is is it's a reflection of the way in which the internet was constructed which is partly u.s government initiative um, but it's governed by a whole complex array of non-government organizations ngos um, and private sector companies and it and it works it's it's a smorgasbord of of different interests um and uh, organizations of different uh, ilks but what you have uh, are a number of other nations who feel that that isn't the right way and it advantages western countries too heavily um and that the internet should be under far more direct state control and that it should be a state-owned and governed environment um you know just imagine what the internet might have looked like if government had invented it and maintained it. You know, I mean, one of the things we enjoy is that kind of free flow of ideas, innovation, and it's led to the kind of economies that, and, and lifestyles that we enjoy. And the internet is one of the main reasons that, that we are where we are now, I, w- I would suggest, um, from an economic perspective and, and from a communications perspective. And that, that multi-stakeholderism is what you know, Western like-minded nations try and embody um, in that international environment. There's a whole array of different interests here and we need to keep those present. Um, uh, as I say, there are very strong voices though from a whole other set of governments who really don't want that to be the case and would far rather that they had far more distinct say. So we'll, we'll turn, before we close this discussion, we'll turn to Australia's region, we'll turn to the Indo-Pacific and I guess there's two questions I have there. One is to look at... Uh, really how we do our cyber and critical tech diplomacy in our region. Uh, you know, where are, we, where are we reaching to? What are the points of traction? What are some, some of the challenges? But also a particular uh, initiative that's, that, that's, that's evoked quite a lot of interest lately, which is the way that the, the quad, the quadrilateral uh, dialogue is of the United States, Japan, India and Australia is now uh, explicitly including uh, cyber and, and technologies among its, um, I guess, its, its ambit of issues that uh, that it wants to cooperate on. That's evoked a lot of interest, and I should, of course, just declare um, for the record that uh, my own college, the National Security College, is doing uh, some quad research, quad tech network research, which is uh, supported by uh, the Department of Foreign Affairs and Trade in, I guess, a, a track two uh, variant of, of that kind of cooperation. But but what is the uh, what is the narrative for Australia pursuing cyber security uh, and cyber diplomacy in the Indo-Pacific and with the Quad in particular? Yeah, look, absolutely. Um, so the the focus of our cyber and tech diplomacy is, if you like, global in perspective, but regional in focus, and necessarily so. Um, 
so you know we we have a whole array of different bilateral engagements um bilateral mous and very practical mous with all sorts of kind of practical avenues that we pursue together um bridge building if you will and and you know another area of work that we've built massively over the last four and a half years is the way in which we assist other countries in our region um, develop their approach to cybersecurity, to cyber policy, and, and now increasingly to broader critical tech and standards around that. Um, and, and as a government, we've invested enormously in this. We, we've taken our capacity building work from a $4 million investment in 2017 to now just shy of $100 million that we've invested in. And, and can I interrupt you? What, what does capacity building mean for those of us who don't know diplomatic uh, terminology? Um, so capacity building is working with our regional partners. It's um, essentially development assistance work. Um, in trying to build a, a, a particular country's ability to cross a whole range of different issues, but it might be that we're looking to work with a country to help them uh, address how they approach cyber policy. Um, it may be that we're looking to work with a country to technically help them uplift uh, their approach to cybersecurity, as we've done in Papua New Guinea in helping and working collaboratively with that government to build a cybersecurity operations center there. Um, it, it could be about uh, working with them to uplift their understanding of international law and norms and their ability to then engage in the multilateral discussion as well. Um, and that's just, if you like, tip of an iceberg. And actually, that's one way we've harnessed our collaborative partners, including the ANU, to incredible effect. Um, we've worked with over in the region of about 50 different partners, ranging from Qantas, Ernst & Young, um, Commonwealth Bank uh, to tiny little SMEs with just a handful of employees to um, academia. Uh, you know, it's, it's, it's been a real privilege to work with such an energetic, um, you know, collaborative environment, building um, the Australian brand around the region and, and assisting countries genuinely be better equipped to respond to these issues. But you're right to bring, bring up the issue of the quad. Um, you know, you just need to look at the the market power of those four nations, which is considerable, um, includes two of three of the biggest innovation hubs on the planet. Um, all of us looking at a critical technologies and, and what they're going to do for us domestically and also all concerned about that international environment. So um, the, the leaders meeting uh, produced a, a new working group um, which is more exciting than perhaps a working group sounds. Um, but really what's that doing? That, that is powering our collaboration as four considerably tech-advanced nations to work on issues of you know, commonality, of course. You know, so making statements around what it is we want to see out of that technology environment. How do we work collaboratively in, uh, in, in standard-setting bodies to ensure that we're more coordinated in those areas? How do we work on 5G telecommunications issues together and to assist others as well, along with a whole array of different issues? So um, it, it's really about getting practical work moving forward through the quad um, in order that you know, we can help shape that tech environment in a positive way. And again, it goes back to the values piece. So we can help shape the tech environment in a way which um, fits with value, the values that we share. So you know, I'm and and I'm uh, quite a, I guess, a strong advocate of the potential for the Quad and some of these other new and emerging coalitions to have an impact on the international environment and to advance 
interests and, and principles that we share. And I note that in the, uh, the Quad Leaders meeting, which you referred to, and the statement that, that's launched this, um, this technology, cyber and technologies working group and other working groups too, incidentally, on, on COVID and climate and other issues. But there's, for example, uh, an intention to, to develop agreed principles on technology design, development and use, which I think could be a very powerful tool for coordinating the, um, the efforts of those countries and maybe others that, that you can sign on. At the same time, in, in the research that we're doing, you know, we, we, we've, we've identified, of course, as well, that there are, uh, there are differences in national experience. It's not all commonalities. Uh, you know, India does go its own way, for example, and, and of course, at the moment, we're all, um, you know, we're all um, looking and wishing well and hoping and trying to help our friends in India and the, the really tough situation they're going through with COVID, which will also, I think, have an effect on India's ability to be a partner in, in, in at least the short term. So whether it's in the Quad or whether it's in some of these other new cooperative arrangements, how do we also approach the challenge that not all of our partners are going to have identical um, interpretations of the values or principles that, that, that we hold when, when values and principles are so important to our policy? I mean, there is a diplomatic challenge there going forward, isn't there? Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, and I think, you know, I'll come back to the term flexibility. It's not, you know, when... You're never going to win 100% of what it is you want in any negotiation. I mean, I think you'd be foolhardy to think that would be the case. Um, so there will always be, you know, a debate to be had in terms of, you know, you're right to say it's not, you know, it's not that we, everyone in the world shares the same values. So it wouldn't be as an interesting a world as it is if, if that was the case. But, um, you know, there, there's a common enough basis amongst the quad. Um, to begin that conversation and make those joint statements. And even the process of making those joint statements, right, gives you that basis and can introduce new, new thinking, new terms into the lexicon of, of nations that perhaps hadn't thought about particular aspects of technology and the values that it, it, it can, can convey and, and should uphold. So I think it provides us actually with a, a fantastic opportunity for that negotiation and that conversation. Um, and and we're, I'm pretty excited to see where we come out the other end. Um, and, uh, you know, I must add as well, you know, the work that the ANU has done and, and your group have done, Rory, on the QTN is, has been mentioned by colleagues without any prompting. Um, it's, it's definitely struck a chord. Um, so it's, it's great having that outside, you know, kind of thinking to uh, push government along. Um, it's, it's very helpful. Well, it's, it, it is such a connected world these days, um, these days, Ambassador. So I, I, I think a, a metric of success for us is, uh, is meeting diplomats from foreign countries who report back to us our own research uh, <laughs> that they've received in translation through their, um, uh, through their own networks. But uh, look, I just wanted to wrap up on a, a question about how do we measure progress and success? Because it's going to be a continually contested Area uh, and, and you've acknowledged the you know the hard work of multilateral diplomacy in this and other spaces. So how will you measure success for this particular strategy and, and for the work you do generally? Yeah, I mean there's there's various ways I can answer that. I'll answer it first from the very practical side, which is anyone who has the time or inclination and reads through this strategy will see that it's you know it has some high level thinking and what it is that we want to achieve, but also has some very practical actions of how we think those highfalutin objectives can be achieved. Um, and we've promised ourselves itself inside government to keep 
a check on how we're progressing around all of those actions very regularly and we're razor sharp focused on that implementation and actually through our last strategy we published um, where we were up to halfway through the, the life cycle of that strategy so that it was there for others to look at and we'll do the same with this one as well you know it's part of um, you know the transparency that I think is important to keep ourselves um, to account um, I think more broadly it <laughs> what does success look like? And and I think in some ways only time will tell because we are just starting to get into very deep international discussions around what AI ethics look like, for example. And you can already feel the multilateralism, you know, growing in the room and the contestability and the geopolitics play out. Um, I mean, I, I, I would tend to look 10, 15, 20 years in the future. If, if we've been successful in getting this commonality of cause into everyone's vocabulary and government and understanding how central this is to the whole power shift and power dynamic that's going on currently in the world then in 15 20 years time we won't be living in a global society where an authoritarian vision of what these technologies should be doing for us is more present than the one that we would like to view which is as an enabler an economic uh, multiplier um, and something which is, is a benefit to us all and allows us to function in the way that we think we should. Look, thanks for that. And I think it's a, a, it's a fascinating piece of the, I think, the long game uh, that it's good to imagine Australian diplomacy is playing in these, um, these really challenging times. So with that, uh, we'll, we'll close. Um, ambassador Feakin, uh, Dr Tobias Feakin, Australia's ambassador for cyber affairs and critical technology. Thanks for joining us on the, uh, on the podcast on National Security Summit. Thanks so much, Rory. Pleasure to be here. Well, that's it for today. We'll pop a link to the cyber and critical tech strategy in the show notes. If you haven't already, please give the National Security Podcast a rating on your favourite podcast platform. And if you haven't subscribed yet, please do. Until next time, thanks for tuning in. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.